Hello out there. I'm Harris Shilikovsky. I'm a musician. I hear things. We're taught as musicians that music is organized sound. Now, although I'm not a scientist, I am a big fan of science and of great scientists. When I look at the universe, I seek an underlying order of the cosmological things, as others have before me. I attempt to organize the dreams and theories and discoveries of stargazers and dreamers, astrophysicists, astronomers, astrobiologists, and other scientists, which they have magnanimously shared with us. And then I create pieces of music that are inspired by these cosmological things. Opus Magnanimus includes music inspired by these cosmologically exciting discoveries from our present time, including exciting new pictures from super telescopes that enable us to travel back through cosmological time. The musical pieces go back through decades of humanity to compare experiences and experiments and inventions of people throughout history. So not just the present day, but in the past also. Our great scientists also experience life and culture themselves. So I hope these pieces will also help us feel what they feel, hear what they hear, as we share what they see and think about. Each week, you'll hear new music inspired by the latest discoveries and innovations in cosmology and in astrology, and many of these pieces of music will be included in the final version of Opus Magnanimous. By listening to these episodes of the Opus Magnanimous podcasts, you are seeing, hearing, and experiencing firsthand the creation of a grand musical creation. The music playing at the beginning of today's episode is the piece that I wrote to represent the Gemini twins. In the last episode of Opus Magnanimous, episode 6, I started writing music to represent the imaginary astrological qualities for each of the 12 constellations of the zodiac. I played a bit of the first three that I had written, Aries, Taurus, and Gemini. I'm going to continue introducing the rest of the constellations of the Zodiac, one in each of the next nine episodes of Opus Magnanimus. Since the constellations in the Zodiac are more visible in certain months, I'll introduce certain constellations in the month when you can easily look up in the sky and see it. There's a link that I'd like to tell you about that shows you which constellations are visible in the night sky in September. www.constellation-guide.com forward slash constellations dash by dash month forward slash September dash constellations forward slash. And that, along with many other cool links, will be listed underneath this podcast. Now, tonight... Since he or she is visible, we're going to meet Capricorn. Capricorn is symbolized by the sea goat, a mythological creature with the body of a goat and the tail of a fish. This picture, this cartoon, or whatever you want to call it, 
speaks about Capricorn's two-part, his split abilities. Capricorns are supposedly skilled at working in both the material and the emotional areas. They, they can climb steep mountains. Capricorn evidently rules the knees, so it's easier for Capricorns to climb uh, while they build up their psychic fortitude. They're relentless, Capricorns, supposedly, if you believe in astrology. <laughs> uh, remember, this is just for fun. This is not science. This is astrology. Uh, but anyway, Capricorns supposedly have focus. They, they, they can stay focused on things. Some people think that they're cold and unemotional, but that's because they have perspective. Capricorns supposedly age backwards. So they start out old and they become more playful as they get older. We learned... Oh, so let's... I guess we should listen to... Before we go on, let's listen to... Capricorn. You'll hear at the beginning the stern waves of the sea. At the end, as Capricorn gets younger, you'll hear the goat laughing. Now, 
In episode six, we also talked a bit about these philosophers, scientists, uh, perhaps I should just call them scholars or writers, uh, of the third century before the Common Era. So Aristarchus of Samos, who said that the universe had the sun in the middle, which is actually, we don't believe that the sun is the middle of the universe, but we do believe, or we know, in fact, by evidence, that the sun is, in fact, in the center of our solar system. So Aristarchus was close. Uh, He based this conclusion on the fact that the sun is much larger than the earth. Now, moving up to uh, about 500 years later, the second century, now we're in the Common Era, so the year 200. There's a guy named Ptolemy, or Ptolemaeus. Yep, I looked it up on Google pronunciation. Anyway, Ptolemy wrote something called the Almagest. So this was a, you know, sort of the final word, at least in his opinion, (laughs) on ancient Greco-Roman astronomy, uh, in which he talked about the Earth-centered universe with the sun and the moon and the planets all revolving in these orbits around the Earth. So I've got a great article from uh, Britannica about this. Uh, So the Almagest was like a manual. Um, And the Islamic and European astronomers actually used it as a guide until for a long, long time, for, for like 17 centuries. Uh, they relied on this. Uh, Mathematica syntaxis, the mathematical arrangement. Um, so uh, anyway, it was translated into Arabic in the 8th, 9th centuries, and then from the Arabic it was translated into Latin, so, you know, it spread all over the world. In the beginning of the 15th century, uh, the Greek one, uh, the Almagest, was, uh, you know, seen uh, being looked at in Europe. Uh, but uh, he, there were, he broke it down into 13 different books. And in the first book, he argues that there's a cosmos that's a geocentric spherical cosmos. So it's round and it has the Earth in the center. Um, But the thing that's really useful, he kind of didn't get it right about what the solar system or the universe, you know, is how it's organized uh, as far as where the heavenly, which heavenly bodies rotate around which ones. But he did introduce, in order to to understand his idea, he introduced some trigonometry and a trigonometry table um, that in, in the other books he uses it to explain and predict 
have the, the mo movements, the motions of the sun and the moon and the planets and stars. The second book uses a spherical, so a round sphere, trigonometry, to explain cartography, so how, you know, how to make maps and um, things that happen astronomically, uh, like how long the longest day would be um, in certain places. Uh, the fourth and fifth books talk about the difficult problem of how the, what, how the moon moves, you know, in the way it does. And then book five uh, talks about um, some tools, instruments, that could be made to help uh, these investigations. So now, see, we're getting closer to the idea, you know, that, that maybe we need things like, like I always talk about, the discovery or, or the creation or invention of the telescope. Now, these are not telescopes yet, but there were some really interesting devices uh, that he talks about in his books. And then the seventh and eighth book that he wrote, he wrote 13 books, um, are mainly uh, talking about the stars, which he talks about them as being fixed. Uh, and uh, he gives their ecliptic coordinates and the magnitudes, which, you know, is like how bright about 1,022 stars. Uh, so he looked at a thousand stars, supposedly. Um, what we see in the uh, Britannica is that they say that the catalog actually was probably copied from Hipparchus, uh, another scholar that lived a little bit before him. And that Ptolemy really just converted, you know, th things um, to to use his um, uh, ecliptic coordinates. So, uh, so let's look. What does what does ecliptic actually mean? In case you're not familiar with that word, let's look at another one of those fantastic Britannica science articles. Uh, this one is on the subject of the ecliptic. Um, the ecliptic is a huge circle that in astrology or in early, like in Ptolemy's time, uh, thinking, it was the path that the sun would take, this giant circle the sun would take, um, as it went through the constellations. So in other words, when you look up in the sky, you see different constellations. You know, every week the sky changes slightly. Well, they thought that it that the sun was moving through these constellations and it made a big circle. From another viewpoint or another way of looking at it is the, the projection of the celestial sphere um, Uh, of the the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, so instead of the Sun around us, you could look at it as being the Earth going around the Sun, which is the way it really is. Um, and um, the constellations of what we call the zodiac, which are twelve or thirteen different constellations, and of course a constellation, as you know, is a bunch of stars that all 
seem, you know, if you look at them and use your imagination, they seem to represent pictures and things like that. Um, and these constellations of the zodiac are are organized right around, you know, on that line of the ecliptic. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of the math um, that defines all this stuff. You can look that up in my Britannica article on the ecliptic or any number of other fine articles uh, that describe the idea of the ecliptic. Um, but uh, so we're moving on here. And I want to tell you about a great uh, article about, uh, you know, the universe, about constellations, and, and, you know, a lot of good basic information about stars and how they're organized that way. Um, and it's in the astrosociety.org publication, which I will also list in the notes below this podcast. So moving on, back to Ptolemy. Um, the, the, the full Latin name was Ptolemaeus, or Claudius Ptolemaeus. Um, he was uh, an Egyptian astronomer, a mathematician, a geographer, um, who was, you know, his people came from Greece originally, but he lived in, in Egypt, in Alexandria. Um, so he, um, this Almagest was his first big astronomical work. So I guess he wrote some other important things. I guess this is really what he's known for, though. His catalog uh, that we spoke of before of 1,022 stars in the Almagest included estimates of their brightness. And the, the, the stars... Uh, were arranged into 48 constellations that could all be seen. These, these are constellations, obviously, because he didn't have real sophisticated tools yet. You could see these all with the naked eye, since the telescope really had not still been invented yet. So, but now, he, you know, started this and, you know, did a nice job. He did borrow some of the information, granted. But, you know, he, he started or advanced a lot of this work of looking at the sky and figuring out what things are. Uh, but um, we are still counting and cataloging stars to this day, although now we have recently developed the ability to include information about these stars about the makeup of the gases in the atmosphere of celestial bodies, about the mass of these celestial bodies, and about other critical information about each star and even exoplanets. We're going to continue to enjoy more information from ESA's Gaia project, or Gaia mission uh, project, later on in this episode. Ptolemy has a... Uh, prominent place because of the mathematical methods that he used to solve these astronomical problems. He contributed to the trigonometry. Um, his table of the lengths of chords in a circle is considered the earliest surviving uh, table that shows a trigonometric, trigonometric 
functions. Uh, so, the, and again, there's a great article about the law of cosines that you can take a look at. Um, he also applied uh, theorems. Uh, evidently, were discovered by Menelaus, Menelaus of, excuse me, Alexandria, um, that also uh, were solving uh, basic astronomical problems. Um, and Ptolemy also had another treatise that he wrote on harmonics. Now, if you're a musician, you know that harmonics, well, you may not know. Some, If you're more advanced, you might know about harmonics. Actually, I'm going to give you an example of some harmonics. I'm going to grab my violin and play you uh, a series of harmonics. I just grabbed my violin and I tuned it up playing my open strings. Hope you can hear that okay. Um, so now my open strings are, are, if you're playing a string instrument, you don't put any fingers. You don't, you're just playing a, a string that's vibrating. And it's vibrating at a low pitch. Now I'm playing a low string. So that's my G string. I haven't put any fingers on it. If I put my finger on the fingerboard and block that, that part of the fingerboard, it's going to go up higher. So now putting my finger on that fingerboard and squeezing the string means that I'm actually shortening the amount of string that is vibrating. Now if I play a higher note, I'm shortening it even more. But now, I'm going to play the G again. Now, eight notes higher. So that's an, called an octave higher. If I just barely touch that string, I don't push my finger down all the way, like this, but instead I'm going to lighten up my finger And just barely touch the string. That's octave higher is actually putting my finger at the point where my string is divided exactly in half. That's my first harmonic. So there's a series of harmonics. So these are places where you can naturally just set your finger on the string very lightly and you'll get this little, this little singing tone that's called a harmonic. And harmonics meant different things to different scholars uh, and uh, they probably used the term in different ways, but Ptolemy this man who lived, this scholar lived 200 years after the, uh, you know, in, into the Common Era. So we're talking 2,000 years ago. He uh, created uh, or, or helped to advance the creation of 
musical theory, which is part of what I'm talking about here with the uh, the octave note and everything that I played for you. So he he um, made he reached his conclusions. Ptolemy did um, by kind of looking at things and experiencing things and jumping to conclusions about those things. We call that empiricism, um, where you use your observations and your feelings and everything to make, to draw conclusions about things. And then he also had mystical, arithmetical speculations. So... Uh, that were associated with uh, the Pythagoreanism. So uh, Pyth- Pythagoras, of course, you know, we know about the Pythagorean theorem and his triangles and all this different stuff. So, I mean, there's some real math there. There's some real, uh, uh, there's, there's some real, you know, we're developing trigonometry. We're talking about shapes and and math that governs these shapes and things. But built into his belief system were also a lot of things that were not based on science, but were more based upon, oh, well, I saw that and it sounded like this or it felt like this. His discussion of, of reason and the senses, what you, what you sense, what you experience to acquire a scientific knowledge, um, do have a bearing beyond the musical theory. Um, so let's take a quick peek at his biography um, of Ptolemy. So uh, let's see. We don't really know much about his life, unfortunately, except what he wrote. Uh, so we don't know how he felt, you know, what his emotional or his standing in, in spiritual uh, you know, society or anything like that. Although we we see that his writings were, I believe, widely accepted, so he, he must have, uh, you know, sort of his ideas must have fit in okay with what other people believe. So let's talk a little more about Ptolemy's theory of harmonics or harmony. Now, this is really interesting to me because this is where a little ideas of where science and music kind of cross over each other, which is great. This is a STEAM project, right? Uh, So Ptolemy developed this argument into a a natural knowledge. Um, He imagined a musical scale. So let's just play that Actually, I was going to play you one. I'll play you one on the violin. Here's a scale. Now, I've built a scale into a little piece of music, like Ptolemy might have done. Actually, I call this Ptolemy's World of Mathematics. Now you notice that that scale was different from the other scale that I played. The other scale I played was a major scale. This scale had all the tone of what's called 
a chromatic scale. There are 12 of those tones. So in between the eight notes of the regular scale, there are a bunch of other notes that we stuck in there. Remember that there are 12 constellations in the zodiac. So Ptolemy imagined this musical scale that extended along this huge line of the zodiac. The octave covered half of the ecliptic circle. So um, the, the idea was that if you looked at the two different sides of the universe, that you would get two different planets or two different celestial bodies and that they would be in octaves to each other because you'd have the same scale mirrored on the opposite side of the ecliptic circle. Each of these semitones, these notes in the scale, could correspond to, there are 12 of them, uh, could correspond to each of the 12 zodiac constellations. The, um, the 12 uh, well-known uh, constellations are Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. So when two planets were in opposition, that is, they were on the opposite sides of the sky, they formed an octave interval. So remember, if you go up, that each of those 12 tones you reach what's called an octave. This is an octave. The space between that bottom note and that top note. So when they were in opposition and they formed an octave interval, there, there were now other aspects that Ptolemy used to represent different kinds of intervals. And he also talked about, he suggested that there were maybe other ideas that would relate to the motions of planets, um, that would relate to changes in pitch, uh, with l lower pitches um, when uh, rising and setting of uh, of planets, um, and when the you know planet was at the highest altitude, you know that the pitch would change to a higher pitch. So if a planet is way up high in the sky, you'd have a really high note, you know. It, 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 this hints, uh, okay, so um, th there was uh, also an idea that this could be uh, divided into these motions of the planets could be talked about uh, like they w were things like length and depth and breadth. And um, there was another chapter that was supposedly written by Ptolemy that was devoted to this whole subject of explaining all this stuff, but unfortunately, that chapter has been lost. So we don't really know exactly how he, you know, really perceived of the what we call the music of the planetary spheres. Um, he did propose in the part that we do have written down that the sizes of a planet 
were subject to harmonic principles too. So you might have a planet, a larger planet, having a lower pitch and a smaller planet, perhaps a higher pitch. Um, and then he related these astrological characteristics to their musical harmonies. So you can read a lot more about this um, in some of the links that I'm uh, putting below here um, if you want to learn more about his ideas. Um, I have created an example of how Ptolemy's theories might... Well, I haven't actually recreated a whole thing because actually to, to really... To, to really create a, a complete example of how Ptolemy's theories might sound, it, it's, it would be very complex. Um, and actually, it's impossible since we're missing that important chapter where he explains all these motions. Um, so creating you know, a complete symphony of all the constellations and their harmonies and their ideas, you know, it would be a very daunting task and outside the scope of my Opus Magnanimus project, especially since they do relate to an astrological outlook on the cosmos and what most people describe as being non-scientific, perhaps mystical, but not the scientific type of truth that inspire most of this project that I'm working on here. So, and as I did note earlier, Ptolemy's contributions to the advancement of the techniques used by mathematicians are recognized as being formative and informative for us even today. Um, so again, there's a nice um, explanation of Ptolemaic astronomy um, in the microcosmos uh, from the University of Chicago, which you can take a look at. Now, um, uh, in Egypt, where Ptolemy uh, lived, um, ritual temple music uh, was uh, uh, rattling at what's called a sistrum, which was, I guess, a little rattle. <laughs> and then... Uh, they, you'd sing along with it. it would be voices sometimes and, and harps and percussion instruments, you know, things you bang or scrape, as we like to say. Um, and some of the uh, scenes from pictures, which we do have from way back then, of parties and festivals and things like that, show uh, groups of instruments, lyres, lutes, double and single reed flutes, clappers and drums. And sometimes there are singers and sometimes there weren't. Sometimes there were uh, instruments. And sometimes there were instruments with voices. Not always. You know, this is what, like what we have here. We have instrumental music and sometimes we have vocal music. Um, so now, in a, in a future episode of Opus Magnanimus, when we, are, when we get to meet and, and talk about Kepler around the year 1609, we'll see how Kepler was influenced by the thinking of Ptolemy and Aristotle and how Kepler went ahead to develop his own philosophy or explanations of this same idea of music of the spheres, you know. The, uh, so, like to jump forward in history to preview our discussion, you can always read the Wikipedia article called Musica Universalis. I'll include the link to it below the podcast again uh, for your enjoyment. Um, so, now... I'd like to jump into the present tense because since... Oh, wait a minute. Before we do that, let, let me just play you some of the ideas, the beautiful harmonies and things that, that Ptolemy uh, was, you know, 
enjoyed in his day, you could put it together, take something like a scale and put it together, and you might have something that sounds a little like this. So Ptolemy cataloged a little over a thousand stars, or celestial bodies, or objects. There are, as we know now, a lot more than that in the night sky. We know that because now we have developed telescopes and ways of looking more deeply into space. We can magnify what our eye can see. So Gaia is this project that we started talking about last week. Gaia, Gaia is the name that the Greeks chose for what we call Mother Earth. I recommend that you read the wiki article on Gaia if you enjoy sexy Greek mythology. But anyway, that's just the name that ESA, the, the European Space Agency, chose uh, for this incredible project, the Gaia Project. Originally, GAIA also stood for the Global Astronometric Interferometer for Astrophysics. As the project evolved, the interferometer idea got replaced by a different, what they call the payload, a, a different technical way of looking at stars, but they kept the original mission name, even though it doesn't actually spell out, you know how scientists love to have each letter of a word spell out, you know, 
something like global astronometric interference, GAI, whatever. So that doesn't really work anymore. Um, but it was probably inspired by the idea that, you know, we, here, here we are on Earth and we're looking out into the universe. And so the idea of having it be named after the Greek idea of Mother Earth is probably fine. Um, so there are some good articles. Again, uh, there's a great fact sheet from ESA uh, that I'll put the link in there for you. Uh, it's, it was an, a very ambitious mission to chart, to make a map that's three-dimensional. So, you know, you can see everything. It's three-dimensional, it's three dimensional. so you can, you, you can really experience the galaxy, our galaxy, the Milky Way, um, in a process that revealed the, you know, what the galaxy was made of, how it was formed, and how it evolved. So, so this is really trying to explain a lot of things about how galaxies are formed. Um, by the way, uh, we're going to have, uh, you know what, I think maybe it'd be a good time to just uh, squeeze in a little bit of my uh, forming new galaxies music. I call this first galaxy creation. It was actually written to represent the creation of the earliest galaxies in the universe uh, since my greatest love is looking back as far as you possibly can into the earliest times of our cosmos. But it's a good representation, uh, musical representation, of uh, how I might be inspired by the idea of creating uh, galaxies. you'll hear different you might hear different musical characters in here um, I will explain this later on in a future episode but I just want you to know that some of the different things that create galaxies have to be molecules or, or it's small amounts of of different types of materials like gases, like hydrogen and helium. And as they interact, if they do interact or if they don't, uh, they gradually form different objects and they are the basis for galaxies. So I will explain it later, but you will hear um, helium, the character helium, the character hydrogen, and the character oxygen later on. So, again, here's the first galaxy creation.
So ESA's Gaia Space Telescope is a revolutionary way of understanding our Milky Way because it will, because of the, the amount, the incredible amount of research, of data that it can compile, it scans the sky to measure the position, the movement, the distance, and the characteristics of each celestial object, each star. Um, the characteristics of, of a star, I should just say, are luminosity, color, surface temperature, and we need to understand a little bit about stellar spectral types in order to truly understand surface temperature. And then the size, uh, which is actually the radius of a star, its composition, which of course means what chemicals are comprising the star, and its mass. And ESA measures and compiles data on all these things on billions of stars. It is creating the most precise map of our home galaxy, providing also clues about our galaxy's origin and evolution. Um, it studies the stars, but also what is in between them, as well as asteroids and planetary moons in our solar systems. And then outside our solar system, binary stars, exoplanets, quasars, and galaxies outside the Milky Way. Gaia is going to provide us with, and has already started to provide us with, huge, rich data uh, that will give us a new sense of our place in the universe. So now we're just starting to enjoy the fruits of Gaia's work. So I'm returning in the next episode, episode eight, to look and listen and talk about more of the other parts, because right now we're just uh, experiencing our solar system and the Milky Way and that kind of thing. But we'll also uh, enjoy some of the findings about the asteroids and the planetary moons and the binary stars, exoplanets, quasars, and galaxies uh, that are being uh, looked at by Gaia. Uh, the first, uh, th th now, there's been three releases of data. The third came out recently in June of 2022. Um, the final catalog will contain the positions and distances and motions for more than a billion celestial objects. Each of these objects, Gaia is going to tell us the temperature, which this is something we were never able to do before, where it is in its life cycle, its composition, and what lies between us and the object. And there will be stars from every phase of the stellar life cycle. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, I looked a little bit at, um, at the life cycle of our sun, 
which we might want to uh, make a little piece of music about our son, who, which is actually going through middle age right now. So anyway, the Gaia mission is making this incredibly precise three-dimensional map of more than a thousand million stars throughout the Milky Way galaxy and beyond. Um, it's going. To, we're going to be able to so, uh, solve a lot of questions that we've had about the origin of our galaxy. It was launched in 2013, so it's been out from our planet for a while, December 19th. Its orbit is at the L2 Lagrangian point. Um, and we're going we're gonna to play you a piece of music that's inspired by all this stuff in a minute. So you'll see why I mentioned all these little data points. Its first data release was September 14, 2016. The second data release was April 25, 2018. The early data release of three of number three was in December of 2020. And the most recent number three data release was June 13, as we mentioned before. The technical tools, or what I call the assets that were created for and used in the Gaia mission include a one billion pixel camera, a 10 meter sun shield. It's scanning and cataloging 1,800 million objects, and it weighs two tons. So it's pretty cool. Oh, remember what I was saying about the sun? Our sun, according to Gaia, is 4.57 billion years old. It is in its comfortable middle age, where it is fusing hydrogen into helium and generally being pretty stable. Um, this will not always be the case. As the hydrogen runs out in the core, uh, the, the changes will start in the fusion process and it will swell into becoming a red giant star, lowering its surface temperature in the process. And how, exactly how it works, stars do this when they get older, um, but depending on how big, how much mass they have and, and what's in its chemical composition, um, you um, will have a slightly different formation of the red giant. So, um, so the more we learn about our own sun will enable us to make more better predictions about the future of our own sun. It's kind of cool. Gaia music. This is Gaia. Getting to L2. Pinpointing the positions of the stars. Tracking the movements of the stars.
measuring the distances. Surface temperature of a star. Characteristics of stars. Billions of stars. At the end of each episode, as podcasters do, I'll give a shout-out thanking supporters. And if you'd like to support what I'm trying to do here, please use the link below. Uh, If you're watching one of the YouTube clips, um, you should find some kind of a link there. But in any case, give us a thumbs up, if nothing else. Please, uh, you can subscribe to the YouTube videos helps our YouTube algorithm Um, and uh, you know they'll help us get more growth if they see lots of people subscribing and we have more fans like to give a little shout out to best service for their great digital samples of live instruments like the violins that you hear on many of the compositions and other instruments Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you where you can if you're a producer yourself where you can pick up uh, some of those um, sample libraries that are really interesting quality. Sometimes I mix these samples instruments together with live instruments. Can you tell which are the sample instruments and which are the live performers? This week I'm going to show you where to go to watch some videos that show a bit of how I use samples and other techniques to create the sounds that you hear on these podcasts. If you've signed up as a subscriber, thank you. The more subscribers I get, the less I'll be tempted to look for advertisers. Oy. So please visit the subscribers link and help me make this the best musical scientific podcast ever. <laughs>